Hello, POSNA members and guests, and welcome to our Best of POSNA discussion podcast, Subspecialty Day Trauma Session, part of the 2020 POSNA Virtual Annual Meeting. This is your host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here today with our session moderators, Mauricio Silva from UCLA and Mark Sinclair from Children's Mercy in Kansas City. Three papers have been selected from the session to be highlighted, and we have the opportunity today to go into a little more detail with those authors. Their full narrated presentations are available online, but I'll give a short recap and then we'll jump into the discussions. First, we have the pleasure of welcoming Omar Atasi from Baylor in Houston which, with his presentation, Unstable Pediatric Femoral Shaft Fractures Treated with Flexible Elastic Nails Have Few Complications, which examined a retrospective cohort of 101 patients aged 2 to 12 years treated with flexible intramedullary nails. The authors evaluated fracture characteristics, details of treatment, and post-op complications. They found that 50% of the patients included were length unstable, and that despite this, all patients went on to union. Almost half of the patients were immobilized in some way postoperatively. No patients required revision for malunion, and no patients had a leg length inequality over one centimeter. Six had coronal and sagittal malalignment more than 10 degrees, and three had malrotation greater than 15 degrees. All three patients that required unplanned return to the OR for symptomatic hardware had canal fit of less than 80%. No patient, fracture, or treatment characteristics were predictive of complications, which suggests that flexible elastic nails can be used in the majority of femur fractures with appropriate patient selection and surgical technique, regardless whether length stable or unstable. So this is a controversial topic, and I'll let our moderators dive into this presentation. All right, well, thanks, Julia. This is Mark Sinclair from Children's Mercy, Kansas City. This is Mauricio Silva from Orthopedic Institute for Children in Los Angeles and UCLA. So Dr. Atasi, I love this paper. As like most pediatric orthopedic surgeons, I want to flex nail every pediatric femur fracture in the five to 11 year old age group that meets weight criteria. And on first glance, this paper says, go for it. So your research question was, is there a particular fracture characteristic associated with increased complications with flexible nailing? And I noticed early in your paper, you referenced Ernie Sink's paper from 2005, that was one of the first papers to point out the issues with length unstable femur fractures and flexible nailing. In Dr. Sink's paper, their problematic fracture characteristics were the long oblique fracture pattern or the OTA-A2 and the comminuted fracture patterns, which are the OTA-B and C. Can you talk about how you did with those specific fracture patterns? Sure. Thank you very much for that question, and thanks for having me today. Um, just a little background. I, I am an adult traumatologist, and I, my fellowship, we actually did pediatric and adults, so this paper is all done by um, adult traumatologists over the 10-year span. And we also like flexi-nailing everything we can. So for the A2s, meaning a long oblique, not a spiral, and uh, the B2s and 3s, meaning comminution, those were, I, I kind of sub looked at it in specifically to see how we immobilized those patients to see if they varied. And for the A2s, two of them have a, had a long leg cast placed on postoperatively. And then four of them were supplemented with a knee immobilizer. Then for the B2s, meaning just a butterfly, there was two in a knee immobilizer and the rest were, did not have any further immobilization. And then for the B3s, one had a spike of cast. Uh, as far as how they did postoperatively in terms of complications, uh, in the B2 and B3 groups, there was one, one patient that had symptomatic hardware, uh, and there was one patient that had a leg length discrepancy with the operative leg being shorter by five millimeters. 
Um, as far as the A2 group, there was four patients that, that had symptomatic hardware, um, and none of these cases had the flexing nails taken out prematurely. And the leg length discrepancy occurred in one where actually the operative side was half a centimeter longer. So in that particular fracture pattern, you didn't necessarily alter your operative technique or your post-operative no, mobilization? Sir. No, so th the only thing that varied, um, and it was very surgeon-dependent and was definitely not protocoled and across the board, it fluctuated a lot depending on the tending. And that was one of the weaknesses of the paper, is there was one attending that seemed to play spica cast more than anyone else, and the other people may not do it at all. It just depended surgeon by surgeon, even though the classification of the fracture could have been similar. You know, I noticed that you were very strict in, in, in how you did things. You strictly adhered to weight limitations. I think like 97% of your, percent of your patients were less than 49 kilos. And I also was uh, noticing that you were very good about your canal fill with 94% of your patients having a canal fill of 0.8 or greater. And those that didn't is where you had some issues. Yes, and that, that's one thing that the group stresses, that across the board, they tried to get 80% every time or greater. And when I was do, doing the literature search originally for this paper and asking this question, what is unstable? A lot of the papers that we hang our hat on are saying, oh, this is the unstable pattern that doesn't comment on necessarily the canal fit and may have actually been before that became commonplace. So th there, they were retrospective studies that preceded those papers coming out. So I was curious to know, well, if you actually look to see what percentage of your patients actually had a good canal fit and followed the weight classification, maybe we, are we can mitigate a lot of those complications we were seeing. Now, you did have um, a number of uh, symptomatic pin migrations, and I think as far as pediatric orthopedic surgeons, a lot of us have that same problem. It shortens a little bit and the nails back out a little bit. Have you changed your surgical technique to manage this particular issue? One of the things, it's always a battle between making it too proud or making it harder to take out. And seeing these patients complain about it, we have altered it in the sense that we will be a little bit more aggressive in, in cutting the wire. We actually looked in the paper, too, in the full-length femurs to see if this coincided with shortening. And the majority of those didn't actually shorten. It was just a proud implant. When I was doing the paper, the one group that I thought might be a problem with flexi nails is someone that had significant comminution, meaning uh, greater than 50% comminution or less than 50% cortical contact. Those people in my head, especially at the isthmus, if they were significantly comminuted, I feel like you would have trouble controlling the, the canal fit. Um, unfortunately, as you can see in the paper and as you pointed out in your question, uh, there was very few of those patients in the series of 101. So if you look, there was only one B3, there was seven B2s, and zero C-type fractures, meaning there wasn't those that had significant comminution. So then that caused me to go back and look at the submuscular platers. Well, maybe there was a selection bias that the group was plating ones that had significant comminution. And in those 10, 12 years that I looked at it, there was only about eight patients that had submuscular plates, or I believe it was nine. This is Khalil Pasni from San Diego. Um, quick question for Omar. So we had that same issue with the 80% fill. We had looked at our tibial uh, elastic nails, and basically if we didn't get 80% fill, we had a higher risk of malunion and kind of loss of reduction. Um, and in that paper, we recommended maybe stacking nails, so adding more nails. Uh, do you think that's an option in femurs? So basically what that tibia paper showed was that just based on the diameter of nails available and the tray that we used, we couldn't possibly get 80% fill. 
with two, two elastic nails. So maybe putting additional nails, like three or four, or maybe going into a plating construct at that time. I agree. These are interlocking devices, unless you plan to use an interlocking device with it. If, if you aren't, if you're just using a titanium nail that doesn't have that ability, then you need to fill the canal. Because if you don't fill the canal, that's when you're going to get into problems. So whether that is to supplement it with additional flexi nails, I think if you do so, um, try to avoid doing flexi nails of different sizes. I think other papers have commented on that there's a mismatch, mismatch in the sizes of the flexi nails that can cause a deformity over time. Um, that's the only other comment I would make, but I think that's very true. You need to fill the canal. So this is Mark again. So if you have a unstable femur fracture that comes in tonight on call and you're a little worried about the fracture pattern, are you more likely to just do flexible nails and add another nail or would you go to the submuscular plate or would you, would you even use a small diameter rigid nail? Depending on the age. So if they were old enough, then I would do a rigid nail. 11 or greater, I would consider an 11, a rigid nail. If I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to fill the canal or the fracture is very distal where I don't think I can get the flexi nails to have enough distance from the fracture, then I would be considering plating. So I think my last question for Dr. Tazi is in the subtrochanteric region, you had a few of those. How do you feel about those? Do you like to flex nail those in a certain, certain age group and in a certain size or will you plate some of those more aggressively? No, I actually have been very happy with flexi nailing them. Last year in particular, there were several of these proximal third or subtrochs that came in, and we were able to control them, and they followed up and did well. Do you vary your technique? Do you go up the femoral neck more, like Schilt has, has described, yes. or go through the greater? So you, you use kind of a Absolute. special subtrochanteric technique. Absolutely. So it does go up into the femoral neck, and you make sure that on both views, the ends of the nails are not in the same direction. Well, thank you very much. Next, we have Salilu Pastani from Rady Children's in San Diego with his presentation, Functional Outcomes of Talo and Triplane Fractures with 2 to 5 Millimeters of Intraarticular Gap, which evaluated whether operative treatment of minimally displaced transitional ankle fractures led to superior outcomes compared to cast management. 57 patients with at least two years of follow-up were included, 34 treated surgically and 23 treated conservatively. The operative group had larger gaps and larger step-offs on CT than the non-operatively treated patients. Four of the five grade three complications were in the operative group. However, non-operative treatment and larger intraarticular gap after close reduction were both associated with worse functional outcomes. Non-operative patients with less than 2.5 millimeters of gapping had significantly better functional outcomes than those with larger gaps. These results suggest that patients with greater than 2.5 millimeters of intraarticular gapping after closed reduction may benefit from operative management. This study addresses a very interesting topic, and I'll turn it back over to our moderators. Uh, thank you. This is Mauricio Silva-Salil. Uh, thank you very much. This is a very interesting study on a fracture that we uh, deal with on a daily basis. And so let me start by asking you, what was your motivation to take on this study? Yeah, thank you. And again, thanks for including me in this discussion. Um, so the initial motivation was obviously to see if these patients do better with operative or non-operative treatment. And we wanted to limit the patients to ones that had a CT scan after getting reduced in the ER and wanted to really define the gap size and the step off at the ankle joint and limit it to the two to five millimeter group because I feel like over five millimeters, everyone's gonna operate less than two millimeters, everyone's gonna not operate. 
But when we did that analysis, we saw that the two groups were actually significantly different, um, the operative and non-operative group. So we had to kind of rethink it and didn't want to just, you know, present the fact that, uh, you know, our analysis was didn't compare apples to apples. So we went back, collected the functional scores and tried to do that regression analysis to see if we could just throw surgery as a, as a dependent variable into the analysis to see if that would come out as being significant. And I think ultimately it ended up answering our question, but it went in kind of a roundabout way of achieving that. That's right. Now, before we talk about the outcomes, one of the questions that I had, you clearly explained that all of the patients that you included in the study had a CT scan when others yeah. didn't. And so yeah. can you help us address the, this ongoing debate about the need for uh, 3D imaging for transitional fractures in, in, in the pediatric population? What are your indications to use 3D images uh, in these patients? When do you obtain a 3D image? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, I mean, everyone kind of knows the San Diego bias for CT scans. And, you know, I don't want to propagate that myth, <laughs> I suppose. But I do see uh, the value in obtaining axial imaging in these particular patients. And I think multiple previous studies have shown that that axial imaging does change your treatment. Any fracture that goes into articular in the distal tibia, I think should get uh, axial imaging. Nowadays, we have a more fine-tuned pathway to get that. The patients get reduced in the ER and at their first follow-up visit when they get the cast overwrapped, we have a cone beam CT in clinic where that assessment is performed. So try to minimize the radiation that the patient's getting and really define our displacement to make our clinical decisions. So in terms of your question about 3D, I don't think necessarily we need to get 3D reconstructions for all of these axial images because insurance companies oftentimes don't pay for them. But I think an axial assessment at the joint surface is extremely important. I think some of our previous work looked at displacement at the physis, you know, more than two millimeters displacement. That's kind of gone back and forth. And I'll let Dr. Pennock and Dr. Mubarak duke that out. But in terms of the intraarticular fractures, I think it's still important to quantify that gap. And I, I, I think you're right, right? We, especially for the intraarticular fractures. Now, with regards to the outcomes, I, I was, it was interesting to me to see that all the functional outcomes were actually the same or very, very similar in patients treated with and without surgery. However, the regression analysis really came out indicating that the non-surgical management was a negative factor in terms of the outcomes. How do you explain that gap between the two, the two findings? Yeah, yeah, excellent. So that's a great question. And I think that's the problem with comparing apples to oranges. So if you just look at the operative and non-operative group and look at the means, so the two subjective scores that we measured are the FAAM, the foot and ankle, ankle mobility score, and then SANE, yeah. which was like a single uh, assessment numeric evaluation. So basically the means wash out to become not statistically different between the two groups, but it's because the two groups aren't comparable and there was significantly greater gap and step off in the operative group. So basically while that assessment is true, you have to then go and put it into that regression analysis, which looked at nine separate variables to see which of those ended up being significant. And, and that included the follow-up. So we, you know, we were looking if uh, we followed these patients for longer, did that result in worse scores, the maximum step off, maximum gap, breakthrough complications, the type of fracture, comminution, all of that type of stuff. So nine different variables went into that uh, multivariable regression analysis. 
and that basically showed so the both both scores that you looked at the fam or the sane both showed that uh, surgery uh, was associated with better outcomes the amount of gap and if a grade three complication occurred was associated with worse outcomes so just to clarify again the surgery group had greater displacement but they also had greater complications so both of those variables affect your subjective outcomes and so I think in that overall analysis, it kind of washes it out because there's pros and cons of surgery, obviously. Um, but I think this regression analysis is kind of a stats magic way of looking at each of those variables individually. Now, a question that I actually also had, how often do you hardware removal in these patients? And if you consider doing the hardware removal as part of the treatment, does that change your analysis or the way you will evaluate the outcome? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the in our discussion, we have the patients that had hardware removal. We didn't consider that a complication because I feel like most of the time it's just because it's what we told the parents to do or the parents just don't want metal in the ankle. You know, I don't think it's truly symptomatic hardware in most kids. So we didn't include that as a complication. The complications we had were wound infections and kids that needed a pyphseodesis. Some kids had a CRPS type of issue. Some kids had a perineal nerve neuropathy, superficial perineal nerve. So those were the ones that actually had complications that we included. And vast, vast majority were in the surgery group. That's great. And I, I agree with that. Now, just to finish, Salim, what, what is your current algorithm for the treatment of these fractures? Just tell us how at Radius Children, a patient that comes, how do you make your, your treatment decisions for a patient like this? Yeah, so I'd say everyone is assessed either through clinic or the emergency room. Everyone would undergo conscious sedation close reduction, get a cast put on, which is univalved, and then get that axial assessment. And based on that assessment, I'd say if it's less than two and a half millimeters, that's what this kind of regression analysis showed seemed to be the cutoff point. So two and a half millimeters, if it's more than that, they would go surgery. If it's less than that, they would continue non-operative treatment. And this data kind of showed that all the patients that were treated non-operatively, none of them went on to displace further, and none of them needed revision surgery down the road. So we're pretty confident that once you go down that path, you're going to be fine. And that two millimeters, it was interesting, right? So in the intro, we talk about, we were trying to find where this two millimeter came from. And I don't know if you guys have had the same issue. The only thing we could really find is that ring article about distal radius fractures. So does that really mean anything to the ankle? You know, so I think just for that clarification, it helped to know that two and a half millimeters actually made a difference in functional outcomes down the road. So hopefully that helps. Uh, that's great. Uh, you know, I think there is an animal study that was published in JPJS like in 1993, translating what it means a gap on a, on a rabbit versus a human, but they actually calculated that that was what it was going to be about two millimeters. And when you had a gap less than two millimeters, then the likelihood that it will be remodeled with, uh, with articular cartilage was actually much higher. That was Dr. Sarmiento and, and Adolfo Ginas who published that. And so I, I always thought that that's where, where this is coming from. So Salil, congratulations. This was a great paper. I think it gives us a lot of guidance for all of us that are treating this. Salil, this is Mark. Yeah, yeah I, I'm kind of jealous of your uh, clinic CT scan. Yeah. Now, do you evaluate your post-operative reduction with your in-clinic CT scan, or, or how do you rate how well you did by executing your reduction intraoperatively or, or postoperatively? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's definitely an option. We could, um, if we were brave enough surgeons, to 
want to look at our reduction posts. So none of these patients, this was a retrospective study, so obviously none of these patients had it. We are starting to look at some of our intraarticular fractures with that scan again post. There is obviously radiation associated with it. So if we think it's anatomic and under direct visualization in surgery, it was anatomic, we wouldn't get that scan, but it's definitely something worth considering doing in the future. That was a great discussion. Thank you, guys. So finally, we have Katherine Schroeder from Texas Children's Hospital in Houston with her presentation, Flexible versus Rigid Nailing of Femur Fractures in 8 to 12-Year-Olds, Where Are We Now?, which compared outcomes and patient and surgical variables between 49 patients treated with rigid nailing and 66 patients treated with flexible nailing. They found the rigid nail group to be older and heavier, but were allowed to weight bear earlier. Flexible nailing resulted in shorter OR time, fluoro time, and blood loss, but there was no difference in length of stay, time to healing, or total complications. There was also no difference in fracture pattern. More of the flexible nails underwent hardware removals. The authors did note one trochanteric growth arrest in the rigid nailing group. These results may help guide decision-making and family counseling when dealing with older children with femur fractures. So this study dovetails really nicely after our earlier discussion about flex nails in length unstable femur fractures. Um, moderators, I'll hand it back over to you. Hey, this is Mark again. So I, I thought this study was, was great because this is, again, another situation where we have some issues with larger children. What should we do? Do we trust our flex nails or do we want to go to a rigid IM nail? So Dr. Schrader, in your study, you had a total of 105 patients, and some were treated with flexible nails, and some were treated with rigid IM nails. Were there any other femur fractures in this age group that were treated differently, like with submuscular plating? Yeah, thanks, Mark, and thank you all for having me. We, um, I would have really liked to have a third arm of the study with submuscular plates, but we really didn't have the numbers. Uh, we only had six patients in the 8- to 12-year-old age group that had a submuscular plate um, that were true femoral shaft fractures. I think interestingly, we um, when we looked at all of our femur, like the whole cohort, we had over 30% of fractures and the younger kids, so the five to seven-year-olds were treated with a submuscular plate. So it's not like we're not doing them, but I think at our institution, we've just been drifting towards um, rigid nails in the kids that are older than eight or nine. Okay. Now, how do you... Uh, define an unstable fracture pattern at Texas Children's. Do you use the same OTA femur fracture classification that we were discussing earlier, or is it more kind of a gestalt? It's probably a little bit more of a gestalt. We don't do a lot of OTA in the pediatric femur fractures. For us, we uh, define unstable fracture patterns as a long oblique or a long spiral um, or any comminution at the uh, um, fracture side or a butterfly fragment. We defined a long oblique as a fracture length greater than two times uh, the bone diameter at the level of the fracture. So that sounds pretty similar to uh, what Dr. Atasi was describing as well. Exactly. All right. Um, so the statement of significance you had for your study was that this data could be used for surgical decision-making and counseling families. So at Texas Children's, how is the decision made for which treatment technique to use in this age group for a femoral shaft fracture? Uh, yeah, so the reason I did this study was, you know, at post-op conference over the last couple of years, I've sort of noticed that um, we've been putting rigid nails in kind of younger and younger patients and kind of cheating that age down a little bit, and I've done it myself even. Um, I think what we really showed in the study that these are two good options, I and mean, these patients did well, they all heal well. 
um, most of the complications in the flexible nail group were related to hardware prominence or pain around the knee or knee stiffness. Um, and these included four uh, unplanned trips to the OR um, for nail prominence. Um, so I think it's important to counsel families about that. And then on the flip side, um, at least I subjectively kind of, I guess, worry less about the kids that have rigid nails in. I mean, if they walk on them immediately, they probably can't mess it up. So if the patient is autistic or maybe won't be able to comply with post-operative weight-bearing restrictions, um, I may counsel the family to consider a rigid nail even in a little bit younger child. Um, but I really think this just gives us more information when we're talking about the families with kind of these various treatment options. Okay, this is a pretty young age group for rigid IM nails. So do you vary your uh, surgical technique as far as trochanteric entry point in this younger age group? Do you use more of a tip of the troke uh, entry point if they're older and then more lateral troke if they're younger? And most all the pediatric fractures will start at the tip of the troke. And I think I do probably cheat just a little bit lateral um, if the kid is younger. I'm pretty young in my career, but I've noticed I'm, if I'm doing these cases with the residents, they really tend to medialize their hand when they're reaming or trying to, or starting with the opening reamer because it's so what they're, what they're used to doing in the adult fractures. And so it's just something to watch for um, and review with the residents that you really don't have to push your hand way medial when you're treating these really young patients. Do you use the same equipment for the, the younger patient and the older patient? So you know, there's some nail designs that start more laterally, and there's some that are designed to start at the tip of the trope. Do you guys use the same um, equipment for both age groups? No, we don't. I mean, I think in a 16-year-old, you would get more of an adult nail. Um, in the younger kids, we certainly use a more of a lateral entry nail. Great. Now, do you use, routinely use any post-operative immobilization in your flexible nail patients, and has that been helpful to you? Yeah, so I think similar to Dr. Atossi's study, I think just over half of our flexible nail patients had some sort of post-operative immobilization. Um, it was most commonly a knee immobilizer, but there were a couple of spica casts even in this older age group. Um, I tend to put my kids in a knee immobilizer for a couple of weeks, mostly just for pain control. Um, I think that the kids with the flexible nails, you know, there's still a little bit of micro motion at the fracture site. And I think in that first couple of weeks, um, they can kind of feel it and they can, they still have a little bit of pain. Um, but it certainly varies among uh, the surgeons here. Do you routinely remove your flexible nails at Texas Children's? Uh, yes, we routinely um, recommend removal of flexible nails. It doesn't mean they all come back for surgery. Um, and I think in the in the rigid nail group, I usually recommend it in the younger kids, so less than 11. But in the older kids, you, you just leave the rigid nails in? Yeah, unless there's symptomatic hardware or they, the, the family wants the hardware out. Okay. One of the issues that I've noticed when I try to do a rigid nail in a, a younger and growing patient is my distal interlocks will migrate proximally and become more symptomatic as the years go by. Is that something that you've noticed in your patient population, and how do you modify your technique to avoid that? Yeah, so I think it's one of the reasons I recommend taking the nail out in the younger kids. We had one patient in this cohort come back um, with that distal interlock that had you know, migrated proximally and was symptomatic immediately. He, interestingly, only wanted the screw out and didn't want his nail out. Um, but it's definitely something we um, keep an eye out for. I don't think we change our technique much. I definitely would um, rather have bicortical fixation if we have an interlock, so I wouldn't leave it short. Very good. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. That was a really great discussion. I really appreciate everybody's time.
Thank you to all of our POSNA members and guests for tuning in. I encourage everyone to check out all of the virtual meeting content, including the narrated presentations on the POSNA website. Thank you.